Amen. You guys have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you all. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Great to see you all this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning, truly honored to have you. And if I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Jason. I have the honor and privilege of pastoring here at Solid Rock and uh, leading uh, among a uh, body of men, our elders. Ken is one of the men, six, six men who lead our church. And, uh, and I'm just so thankful to serve with men who love Jesus more than they love themselves. They're always reminding me of that and the need to do that. And so i um, glad you're here with us this morning. I uh, truly pray that today you would be honored and blessed and um, in so many ways that God would speak to you and, and touch your life in a significant way. And so um, we're going to be in Hebrews 1 as we get started this morning. If you've got a Bible or a phone or a tablet or some kind of gadget that you use to read the Bible, uh, we'll be in Hebrews 1. If you want a Bible and didn't bring one, it's okay. We put uh, black hardback Bibles under the seats, under your seat, seats around you. So feel free to grab one of those. They're there for you. And we'll get started in just a minute in Hebrews chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, I want to just share with you a little bit about this afternoon. We've got an exciting day planned for um, our church. And so I want to invite everybody here, whether you knew about this or not, to come back out this evening uh, starting at 5 o'clock. We're going to be having a uh, life group cook-off to begin. We're having a challenge for the best burger, the best side, and the best dessert. And so you come at 5 o'clock. You'll have the opportunity to mingle around different tables and to sample the different burgers and desserts and sides and then cast your vote on the best uh, burger. And, uh, and that'll start at 5 o'clock. I encourage you to come out for the dinner. And then right after that, we're going to come into here for our second annual uh, Night of Music. And so some of you were here for that last year. Um, if you weren't, here's what it is. We have musicians uh, who are worship leaders and also songwriters within our church. And so uh, we've got several people going to be presenting songs that have been written. Uh, so we've got some artists back from last year. Jennifer Henderson and Jason Martin uh, are going to be here presenting songs. We also have uh, Harper Waller debuting with her first song that she's written. Yeah, that'll be here tonight. And so, and then we'll end the night uh, with some worship together. Our band will be here. And so that's an exciting night tonight. I want to invite you to come. Uh, this starts at 5 o'clock this afternoon. If it's raining, doesn't look like it's going to be. If it's raining, we'll do dinner down by the kids' building. If it's not raining, we'll be doing dinner right out here on the west side of our sanctuary. So just when you pull in the driveway, look for the tables and grills. Make your way over, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, so um, let's go ahead and, and get into Hebrews 1. We're starting a new sermon series today. We're walking through the book of Hebrews. And uh, what I want to do is just give you just, uh, just an overview or summary of what we're doing for the rest of the year here as a church. And so we're starting the book of Hebrews uh, today, and that will take us through the end of the summer. We'll do a small break, Father's Day, and a couple weeks after we'll do a small family series. Uh, but for the most part, we'll be in the book of Hebrews all the way into August. And then we're going to start the book of Revelation that will take us to the end of the year. So there's where we're headed this year. We're going to cover the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter and then do the same thing in Revelation. So there's, there's what we're going to be doing uh, for the rest of the year in here on Sunday mornings. And so I'm excited to start the book of Hebrews with you this morning. I want to start with just some, some background information, some of the difficulties with Hebrews, and why a lot of times it doesn't get preached as often as maybe some of the other New Testament books. So to start with... Um, there's not a whole lot of certainty about the actual author of Hebrews. There are um, ideas out there, speculations of who could have written Hebrews, um, from Barnabas or Apollos uh, to more likely to Paul or to Luke. Um, And so there's a lot of debate out there in theological circles about who wrote Hebrews, and, and I'm not here to tell you who actually wrote Hebrews, but here's some things I think we can know with some certainty. First of all, the letter was written to, as the title would indicate, Hebrew folks, Jewish people, Christians who had a Jewish background. Okay, we know that by the way the letter opens, but we also know that because there's a whole lot of Jewish imagery and Old Testament history and Old Testament quotes intermingled all throughout the letter. And there's some expectation 
that the readers of this letter would understand what all this means. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that Hebrews doesn't get preached as much maybe as others is because it takes a lot of Old Testament knowledge and understanding to kind of grasp what's going on. A second reason why it doesn't get preached as often, or at least my opinion on why it doesn't get preached as often, is uh, it's very theological. It's historical and theological, and so sometimes it's hard to bridge the gap between theology and practical life. And so that's what we're going to do throughout this series is chapter by chapter walk through these beautiful historical theological teachings, understandings from the Old Testament, and we're going to look at how these things play out, not just on Sunday, but on Thursday morning and Friday evening, okay? And so um, pulling it to life application. So um, just to, just to kind of help you understand, it seems that this letter was probably written um, before AD 70. The way that it's written, especially you get into 9 and 10, it seems like the Jews were still worshiping in the temple the Old Testament way. And so we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so the letter was probably written before then. Um, the primary theme that comes out of Hebrews, um, this is the way I would word it, is this, Jesus is better. And so the author is going to walk us through angels and priests and Old Testament sacrifices and, and all sorts of Old Testament references. And every one of them, the point is that while this was good, Jesus is better. And it's funny, if you'll do like a, a search on the internet for sermon series on Hebrews, that subtitle comes up all over the place. We didn't steal it. It's actually the theme of the book, Jesus is better. Another thing I think it's important to understand is that for the folks who are receiving this, more than likely they were facing some sort of persecution that was challenging them or causing them to want to abandon following Jesus and to latch on to lesser things. And in a matter of fact, this opening chapter, it seems like they were starting to go back to this idea of angels or angelic beings and leaving, the, leaving their faithfulness to following Jesus because of the hardship that they were facing. So over and over again, the author is going to call them back to faithfulness, back to standing firm to the end, to holding firm to the faith, to, to remaining anchored in the truths of God. So we're going to see that, scene, that, that theme play out over and over again, chapter after chapter. And so today we're going to be looking at this, this, this theme, Jesus is better. Now that in the book of Hebrews, over 25 times the word better, more, or greater is used in referring to Jesus, that he's either better, or he's more, or he's greater. And so today we're going to start in verse 1 looking at what the author would want us to understand about who Jesus is. Okay, so we got folks here. More than likely were Jewish who had converted to Christianity. They know the Old Testament really well. They'd given their lives to follow Jesus. Things had gotten hard, and they were beginning to, to shrink back or to hesitate. And many of them were beginning to latch on to the idea of worshiping angelic beings. So here's where the author begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, speaking of the great Hebrew patriarchs of the Old Testament. So the author is probably Hebrew himself. Our fathers by the prophets. So at many times and in many ways, remember how God spoke in the Old Testament. And we know that's true from reading the Old Testament. God spoke at many times through many ways. He primarily spoke through prophets and through angels um, appearing in the Old Testament. But he also spoke through dreams and visions. He spoke through a burning bush. Uh, at one time when Balaam failed to recognize the angel who was standing there, he spoke through a donkey to get his attention. So at many times and in many ways, God spoke in the Old Testament ultimately through the prophets. 
And for the people who were receiving this, they understood that to be an authoritative speaking. So by this point in human history, the Old Testament had already been formalized. They looked upon the Old Testament as the very word of God, inerrant, powerful, authoritative. And so the author is referring to that. And look at what he says about Jesus. So remember that in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the same way, as God spoke through the Old Testament, seas were parted, right? Um, curses were either issued or lifted. Kingdoms fell. In the same way, when God spoke authoritatively and created the heavens and the earth, now Jesus has spoken with that same level of authority and inerrancy. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, he's going to begin to set Jesus apart in a really clear way. First of all, he says this, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, what's such an important understanding of who Jesus is. So in our culture today, when we hear heir or we hear inheritance, we primarily think about money and possessions, don't we? Who's going to get stuff? When we hear inheritance, we automatically see dollar signs or the title to a house or or sometimes even debt. You inherit something, some sort of possession or some financial inheritance. But for these folks, it meant so much more than that. To be an heir, a true heir, meant that you carried along the blood of the Father. To be a genuine and a true heir meant that the Father literally was in you and you were in him. This is what Jesus even spoke about himself in John when he's praying. And so it's so much more than just who gets the stuff. It was an identity marker. An heir was truly of the father. The father was in the heir, and the heir was in the father. And it was a statement of identity. Somebody worthy to take on my identity, my name, my possessions, my authority, my responsibility. And so the idea of heirship was such a significant position. And so more than just possessions, God is saying, this is my son, He's my heir. I am in him, and he's in me. My blood flows through his veins. Not only is he entitled to all that is mine, he's entitled to bear my name. He's my heir. And then he says this, through whom also he created the world. Now, what a magnificent statement to make about Jesus. You see, Jesus had such a significant impact on human history that even religions outside of Christianity wouldn't deny that impact. Now, the question is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? So even like Jehovah's Witness placed some kind of significance on Jesus, but he's not fully God. Islam recognizes Jesus as, as a prophet and a, and a powerful and authoritative teacher. Even your more pantheistic, animistic, you know, just weird religions out there will acknowledge that Jesus was, in fact, an a authoritative teacher. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that he was so much more than just a rabbi, so much more than a prophet, as we'll see in a minute, even more than an angelic being, he is the very son of the living God. Matter of fact, this opening statement says, creation itself came through him. And, and this isn't the first or the only place in your New Testament to, to ascribe that to Jesus, to say that he was in the beginning creating. Matter of fact, the Gospel of John begins there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Well, who's he talking about the Word? Jesus, because later on he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
But then what does he say after he says that the word was with God and the word was God? All things were created through him. So Genesis 1, God's speaking, let there be light. Jesus is there speaking, let there be light. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us create man in our image, male and female, he created them. Jesus is there speaking creation into being. This is different from a rabbi or a famous prophet or powerful teacher. This is God himself. Remember, the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. He's an heir and through him all things were created. And so now what the author is saying is, remember how God spoke powerfully through the Old Testament? Now he's speaking powerfully through his Son. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul reiterates something that Jesus said. So after Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24, he tells his disciples, everything written in the Old Testament was ultimately about me. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, 20, Paul says something to the church. He says, I'll just read it to you, verse 20. For all the promises of God, Old Testament, every promise made from God, find their yes in him, being Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, that's why we pray that way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why? Because everything God has ever promised, ever promised, has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now think about that. I mean, God made some huge promises in the Old Testament. Promised land. A city on a hill. Jerusalem. A temple. These beautiful things, and for the people of Israel, much like us, they begin to see the fulfillment of God's promises in temporary things. God said he was going to establish a city. God said he was going to establish a kingdom. He was going to set kings on thrones. He was going to do these things. And so they begin to see this fulfillment in temporary things. But what does the author of Hebrews say when we get to chapter 11? He says, every patriarch and matriarch of the faith in the Old Testament was looking forward to a better city whose designer and builder was God, not man. So rather than having their eyes fixated on the things here on earth, little Jerusalem, little Israel, little kingdoms, little kings, the men and women of faith in the Old Testament were looking forward to a better city, a better future, a better reality, to the point that they understood that they didn't get to fully realize the promises of God. And so what happens? Jesus comes to fulfill, perfectly fulfill, everything God promised in the Old Testament. That's why at Revelation 19, we have the appearance of Jesus, All of his enemies are placed underneath his feet. He finally has ultimate victory. And then what happens? He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem descends. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews says, he is a true heir of God. And through him, all things are created. And we keep reading in verse 3. The first part of 3 says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's talk for just a minute about radiance. The word radiance here literally means brightness. It's a reference to the glory of God and his brightness. The beauty and the majesty of his glory is such that it gives off illumination and it's bright. It's interesting because when you go to Revelation 21 and you read about the New Jerusalem, some amazing things are going to show up. Let me just read a few verses from 21. So this is John 
He's a disciple, apostle. He's writing down what he sees in Revelation. When we get to 21, we're just a chapter away from finishing the whole Bible here. The new Jerusalem has descended. And look at what 21 says, Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. I remember the old Jerusalem had a temple. But in the new Jerusalem, I don't see a temple. And here he explains why. And I saw no temple in the city. Here's why. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, what he's saying is this. Remember in the Old Testament, the temple was for what purpose? To house the presence of God. To separate the holy presence of God from the sins of man. It's why at the cross of Jesus, um, we find the temple curtains torn, right? Unveiling the presence of God and his glory to us. And so what John is saying, in the new Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, the fulfillment of all that God has promised, there's not going to be a temple there. Why? Because God himself is going to be there unveiled. His glory is going to be unveiled. And then look at what he says. Verse 23, and the city has no need for or no need of a sun or moon. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Why so? No, no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, what a magnificent thing was just told to us about Jesus. So when we think in terms of the, the created world, the universe around us, so much just in our small solar system revolves around the sun, like literally and symbolically, right? Like the sun does so much to seemingly keep our universe in order. Everything rotates around the sun. The sun gives off heat and energy. And, and if a planet is too far away from the sun, it's too cold. If it's too close, it gets burned up. And, and so from the sun, we get right, the perfect distance and axis rotation around the sun. We get our seasons, I mean, just fine-tuned perfectly in reference to the sun. We get our light from it. We get our energy from it. It's thermonuclear activity that gives this off. And you know what? Scientists predict that we've got about... Uh, plus or minus 4 billion years left of the sun. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? Like, I'm good. I have anything to worry about. I'm not going to make it that long, right? I'll be gone by then. But here's what, here's what I would say you should take from this. 4 billion years seems like a long time, but the point is what? It has a shelf life, right? The created world we know has a time when it will no longer be able to sustain or to, to do what it was created to do. And what John has given us imagery into is the complete fulfillment of all things God has promised. We won't need a son anymore. Why? Because Jesus will be there. And just the radiance of his glory will give off the light we need. He is the imprint. This is the, the idea of God's image or his character. He's the imprint of his nature, the very substance of God. Now, our understanding of, of Hebrews and how Jesus has come to be our sacrifice on our behalf, a final sacrifice, right? He was fully man as he did that, but what the author wants us to also understand is he is fully God. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1, I love Colossians. Colossians 1 says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If you're taking notes with us today, Jesus is more glorious than anything else in heaven and on earth. And the author wants us to see him as such. Think of the most powerful, the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most magnificent thing you can think in the created world, and Jesus is better. We continue on in Hebrews, verse 3. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only is he the creator of the universe, he's the sustainer of the universe. And we look at the created world and order, both on a molecular level and on a universe level, we see things that we don't fully grasp. We measure what we can, we estimate what we need to estimate, but at the end of the day, nobody can fully explain why in our universe, order doesn't become chaos. Instead, the other is true. Chaos is becoming order, and it stays together. And we can explain gravitational pull and certain things that we can measure, but at the end of the day, outside of what's measurable, we have Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, sustaining and holding all things together. He is sovereign over every molecule in your body, every atom, and every piece of matter. We're doing our best to measure things by light years and and, and, and trying to use these measurements that we have a hard time comprehending, and Jesus is bigger than those things. Not only is Jesus more glorious, Jesus is more powerful than anything else in heaven and on earth. He's creator, he is sustainer, holding all things together. Holding all things together, he is more powerful. Let's read the rest of verse 3 together. And so after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I love what the author has done here in these first three verses. Because I think our tendency is to think about Jesus and think about his virgin birth His walk here on earth, he fed a bunch of people, he walked on water, he did these miracles, he died, he went to the grave, he rose again, and he ascended. And we tend to think of Jesus that way, right, in in, in a sense that he's bound by time. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see Jesus bigger than that, not bound by time. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's talk for a minute about purification of sins. Um, I think that um, the, oftentimes we get too cheap an idea of what Jesus has done for us. And so we hear forgiveness of sins, and we simply think that Jesus has gone over to the dry erase board and just erased our name. Or Jesus has gone to the judge and said, hey, I tell you what, why don't we just be lenient on him or her? I, I know they did that stuff, but let's just be lenient. How about that? Let's just not punish them this time. And, and so what we're seeing here is so much deeper than that. We're not just forgiven or dismissed from our sins. We're actually purified of our sins. 1 John 1.9 says what? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and what? Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Later on in our service, we're going to see a young man be baptized. And what's happening is this symbolizing that not only has his sins been forgiven, but he's been cleansed to the depths of who he is. 
you think of sin kind of like cancer. It has deep, dark roots that, that grow deep into who we are and try to latch on and, and hold us in shame and hold us in guilt and hold us with a sense of feeling like we're not loved or wanted or we don't deserve. And, and so what, what happens is Jesus not just forgives the sins, but he cleanses the depths of sin in our lives. It's like the prodigal son when he comes home and returns to the loving father. The father doesn't just say, hey, you can come back into my house. What does he do? He clothes him with the robe of identity, saying, you are mine. You're as much mine as you've ever been mine. When I see you, I don't see your mistakes. I don't see that you squandered your wealth and you lived with pigs and you walked away from me. You're mine. You're just as much mine as you ever were. He robes the son in the same way as we just sing about when God justifies us. You can think of it this way, just as if I had never sinned. He clothes us with his righteousness. So the forgiveness is so much deeper than just my name being erased off the dry erase board. I'm going from sinful and shameful and guilty to now righteous and able to stand in the presence of a holy God. Only God can do that kind of work. Matter of fact, we're going to get to Hebrews 9 and 10 later on this summer. We're going to see how the blood of bulls can't accomplish this. No amount of killing animals or sacrifices could ever cleanse, purify people from their sins. Now, I think that, I think that on some level, most of us in here believe that, at least conceptually. I think where we struggle is to believe that functionally, and I'll explain that as we go along what I mean by that. So I come to any person in here who's a Christian, and I ask, do you believe that Jesus is better? Better than what? Better than anything. And the answer is going to be yes. yes, right? Conceptually, we believe that. However, there still seems to be a struggle functionally to live that out in our lives, right? We live our lives like other things are actually better. And I'm just going to put forward an example. Just our prayer lives often indicate that we don't believe Jesus is truly better. So when we're feeling lonely, what do we do? We ask Jesus to give us a relationship or to make a relationship better. Instead of, right, allowing Jesus to be our comfort, we ask him for, for something else, something lesser than to bring us comfort. Whenever we're feeling not accepted, I don't fit in, I don't, I don't, feel, like it, I don't feel like anybody accepts me, we say, could you fix that? Could you make me more attractive? Would you make me prettier? Would you make me more fit? Would you make me funnier? Would you, would you help me with my personality? Would you, would you make me more likable so I can feel more accepted? And we're looking for acceptance in what? Lesser things. Rather than coming to Jesus and say, would you remind me that I am accepted by you already? How about this desire to be loved? Um, I used to be in student ministry. And, uh, and gosh, what, what desperate things teenagers are compelled to do with a desire to be loved. And, you know, and I see this play out in dating relationships. Um, you know, a lot of times for teenagers, especially like young girls, there's this, there's this sense of I, I need to feel wanted and accepted and, and loved, and, and I'll do almost anything to feel that way. And so you got all these young boys running around with hormones off the chart, right? And, uh, and so what happens is, I used to say this in youth ministry, um, a lot of times guys in high school are willing to trade love to get physical relationship. And the girls are there willing to trade physical relationship to feel loved. And, and I think that that plays all, all out in adulthood, and I see it in men as well. 
We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. We want people to look up to us and respect us and what desperate things we do to feel this way. And rather than coming to Jesus and saying, hey, could you remind me? I mean, like, you're the creator and sustainer of the universe. Could you remind me that you love me? And if I could truly believe that, I wouldn't care what they think. Right? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing all this stupid stuff to try to earn respect and honor and love from people who are here today and gone tomorrow. See, it's one thing to believe it conceptually. It's a whole thing, different thing altogether to believe it functionally and practically. And so even in our prayer life, we come to Jesus and we ask for things that are less than him. How about purpose? I want purpose in my life. So we go to Jesus. Could you give me purpose? And I want to find it in my career. I need you to show me what job, what career path, what education. What. And so we begin to ask for lesser things rather than coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I acknowledge that you were there in Genesis 1. You created me with purpose. Could you remind me of that? Could you remind me of the purpose I already have as an object of your creation? And so we're continually impressed with things, looking for satisfaction in lesser things. And so this understanding that we've been purified of sins is so much bigger than just forgiven. Like it's the purification of sins that ushers us into the presence of Jesus to be satisfied. For these folks who are struggling right now, persecution, suffering is setting in, and so they're beginning to reel and they're beginning to look for satisfaction in lesser things, angels and other things. And the author's reminding them to find their satisfaction in Jesus. And when that happens, it won't matter what they do to your body. It won't matter how mean they are to you or what they say about you or how they treat you because you'll be satisfied. Not in a rabbi or a teacher or a man. You'll be satisfied in the Son of God. Jesus is more satisfying than anything else found in heaven and on earth. He is more satisfying. Now, the rest of this chapter, what the author is going to do is compare Jesus to angelic beings. Makes me think that maybe they struggled with this. I mean, even in our culture today, I think we get a little bit too mesmerized by angelic beings. Angels are real. We're going to see that angels are part of God's redemptive purpose, even. They serve a purpose. In the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, they're bringing messages. They're messengers speaking on behalf of God, working in the li- around lives of people. But here's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. As awesome as the idea of angels are, do not find your satisfaction in those beings. And so for the next few verses, what the author is going to do is separate Jesus from the angels and show how he's far more superior than even angels. Starting in verse 4. Talking about Jesus having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Remember, we're not just talking about possessions. We're talking about his identity. As he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So just think about that for a minute. Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. That title, that name is more excellent than anything else. And he inherited that identity from God. So having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2.7. Or again, I will be a father and he shall be to me a son, 2 Samuel 7.14. Quoting the Old Testament, saying, where where did God ever say any of this about an angel? 
And again, verse 6, and he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the scales just tipped dramatically, didn't they? Angels are now beings submissive to Jesus in worship. Go read Revelation 4 and 5. You're going to see it. Go back to Isaiah 6. You're going to see angelic beings and the way they respond to the throne. They respond with worship. Let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalm 97, 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's from Psalm 104, 4. And then in verse 8, Hebrews 1. But of the sun, he says, this is different, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's from Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Verse 10. You, Lord, remember this, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So when I read... God speaking plurality in Genesis 1, creating. I don't hear God and the angels creating. I hear God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit creating. No place to believe that. That light is blinking at me. It's kind of a neat strobe effect. Yeah. Is there any way we could, like, shut that off? That would be awesome. Sort of. Cool. Anyway, let's roll on. We'll cut that part out. So. The point he's making here is that Jesus is completely set apart from angels. There were no angels involved in creation. Continue rolling on. Verse 13. To which the angels did he ever, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 19, Psalm 110, verse 1. Now the last verse of the chapter. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Do angels have a role in redemption? Seems like it. Do they have a role on the throne of our lives? No. Jesus is better. Now, for those in the room who aren't struggling with the worship of angels, maybe some of you are, for those who aren't, I think there are tons of ways in our modern culture that we do the same thing with things that are lesser than Jesus. So here's what, here's what we got here so far. The point is that Jesus is better. So what do we mean by that? He's more glorious. So we tend to search for glory in smaller things than Jesus. Um, I'm going to give you an example, and I don't need anybody making fun of me after the service, okay? Just make fun of me in your head. So this last Thursday night, I went to um, a new Kids on the Block concert. <clears throat> so, and it's not because I'm a fan, it's because I'm married, and it's a long story. I'll tell you who to blame later. But anyway, I went, and I had heard about I heard about the Beatles and the Beatlemania. You know, I've seen the video footage where they would show up and all these little teenage girls would just woo, pass out because they were just overwhelmed by the glory of these awesome, you know, beautiful boys. And then, uh, and then I heard that it was true about the new kids on the block. I never went to a concert when I was in, like, junior high when they were super cool. Uh, you know, and, and, so, um, and so I went to this concert the other night and I was watching all the people react. And I, and I kid you not, it was really entertaining. Watching grown women, right? who evidently were enthralled with the new kids on the block when they were in junior high or high school, just acting a fool, 
like just shaking and getting nervous. And I got a, we got a video of this lady dancing, you know, she's just going to town. Just, just almost like she's engulfed in worship here. There's new kids on the block. I mean, she's almost 50. I'm like, come on, lady. I mean, these guys have got like, they're about to have grandkids. I mean, look at Donnie. Like, he's, he's getting a little chunky. Like, come on. Just, these are just men up there, right? Not worthy to be worshipped. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I use that as just a, it's an example of how, how quickly in our culture we latch on to smaller things and esteem them with glory. We become overwhelmed and in awe with, with small things, whether it's a sports team, it's a, it's a Super Bowl, it's a, you know, whatever it might be that captures your awe and your affections and, and causes you to, to shudder. And the author's saying is the only person who deserves that place in your life is Jesus. The only person worthy of creating awe in your mind and in your heart. You know, the... the the idea of, of, of like art, I believe, is, is this beautiful thing given to us to reflect the glory of our creator for artists. We're going you know, to see some art here to, or hear some art here tonight, whether it's music, whether it's paintings, whether it's dance, whatever form of art that's out there. If it's redeemed, it's meant to reflect something about the creator, some greater truth. Now, unredeemed art can reflect a lot of just ugliness, right? Um, we'll talk about the rest of the concert later. But... Here's the point. When you look at a Picasso painting, you're supposed to go, oh, that's a Picasso, right? When you hear a Bob Seger song, you're supposed to go, oh, that's, that's a Bob Seger song. When you hear the Beatles, you're supposed to what? Identify with the person who created the art. And so everything that has been created, in a sense, is meant to reflect the creator. And when we latch on and esteem glory to anything other than Jesus... We've glorified something far less. We've latched onto smaller things. We've esteemed glory to smaller things. Whether it's angels or new kids on the block. Or the prestige that comes with a certain position in your career. Or a certain neighborhood or house that you might live in. See, it's one thing for us to conceptually say, oh yeah, Jesus is better. He's better than anything. He's far more glorious, far more satisfying, far more powerful. But then functionally in our lives, we tend to tell a different story, don't we? The point the author is making here is that Jesus is better than anything. When you compare him to God, he's the same. When you compare him to time, he's eternal. When you compare him to creation, he's the author and sustainer. When you compare him to angels, he is far more superior. Now, here's what's true. As we see Jesus given the position of authority at the right hand of God, he sits on the throne. Later on in Hebrews, we're going to be told that you and I, by faith, by grace that comes through faith, we're invited into this throne room. But did you know that in each of our lives, there's a throne as well? And so while conceptually we might say, Jesus is my Lord. He sits on the throne. He's, I, he's everything to me. All powerful, all satisfying, all glorious. What's going on in our hearts oftentimes is such a different thing. Jesus calls you to obedience. Maybe share the gospel with somebody. In the moment you step back in fear, what are you saying? You know what, Jesus, I, I want to be on the throne right now. I'll let you know when I'm ready to give it back to you. And so we might say, Jesus is far more superior. So many times in our own lives, we tell a different story. How about the focal point of our affections? 
You know what? He gives us some great gifts here in life. Spouses, children, things that, we, that stir up affection. But everything that stirs up our affection in the created world is supposed to point us back at him. So even like in my relationship with my wife, as I'm stirred with affection, I'm supposed to look at him and go, wow, you created her and, and you brought her to me. My boys, like, I love being away from them for a day or so just to regain a little sanity, but then I love coming back into their presence. You know what I'm talking about, parents? It's just that affection for them is stirred, and, and you begin to just, oh, I just want to hold them. And, and even my affection for my boys is supposed to cause my eyes to lift up and go, Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. See, my affection in these small things is supposed to stir my heart and my attention towards Jesus, the creator of all things, the giver of all things, the sustainer of all things. How about this, our first responses in moments of struggle? So many times I've said this, and I've heard some of you say it as well, well, I guess there's nothing left to do but pray. Now, let's go ahead and pray, right, at that moment. But what does that reveal? I've tried everything else. I tried fixing it on my own. I did this, I did that, I did this. I even called my mom and got her advice. I tried that, it didn't work. And now I just, there's no other options. Well, what are we saying? We're not saying Jesus is better, right? We're saying he's last resort. So while conceptually we may say, yeah, Jesus is better, functionally our lives tell a different story altogether. If we truly believe that Jesus is more powerful than anything else in heaven and on earth, he would be our first resort. Right? He would be the resort we go to to filter every other option through. Jesus is better. For Christians here today, we need to hear that just like these Christians need to hear that, right? Our hearts are prone, our minds are prone to grab a hold of smaller things. I'm prone to find satisfaction in how well my wife is behaving, how well she's satisfying my needs. And the point is what? I don't find my satisfaction in her. If I do, guess what? As awesome as she is, I'm going to be disappointed. I don't find my satisfaction in the success of my kids. be some days where they do really well and the report cards are straight A's and they're scoring goals, but there'll be other days where things don't go so well. And if I'm finding my satisfaction in how well they perform, I'm going to be disappointed. For us as Christians, I think we need to take some time to recalibrate when we read this first chapter of Hebrews to say, okay, wait a second. I'm quick to step up to the plate and say Jesus is better, but what, is, what story does my life tell here? And so, so my prayer for us tomorrow, I'm included, I'm praying this for me too, is that I would just take a step back, take some inventory, look at the things in my life that I esteem glory and power and satisfaction to, and make sure that Jesus is sitting in the position of, of being Lord in all those areas, that I see him on the throne, that I'm running to him for my satisfaction first, that I'm running to him with my issues and problems, trusting his power over my life, and that I have no greater desire in my life but to see him glorified and lifted up and exalted. Let's pray together. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this beautiful relationship that Jesus died for is yours today. The reason there's no need for a temple anymore is because God's making his presence available to you right now. You don't have to go visit the temple in Jerusalem to find God anymore. The temple curtain has been torn allowing you to have access into the presence of God. That's why we need purification of sins. And so today I just want you to know that this, we, we respond to this invitation by faith alone. There's not a list, a checklist of do's or don'ts. There's not a specific wardrobe that you go to, the store. Where's the Christian clothes? I need to buy some of these clothes. 
You don't even have to listen to the right radio station or come up with the right lingo. You don't even have to, have to know how to spell sanctification, right? The point is this, is that by faith, you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, and you alone, I trust. Rather than running to everything else to fix my problems, my marriage, my identity, my struggle with self-esteem, I'm going to run to you first. And that's what it means to make him Lord of your life. And today, by faith, you can do that. Um, if that's you here today and, and you really, you're ready to become a Christian, um, we want to pray with you and talk with you about that. And that's what our prayer partners are for. Um, they're going to be positioned throughout the remainder of our service back here in the Connect Corner. They're here for you. They're standing back there. They've got the lanyards on, letting you know who they are. They would love nothing more than to talk and to pray with you about becoming a Christian. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. We're going to sing a song and take time to respond now. And I'm going to encourage you to quiet your soul and listen to the Holy Spirit and allow God to maybe do some recalibrating in your own heart to, to revisit your priorities and the things that matter most to you, to see Jesus esteemed back to the throne of your heart and your minds. Let's pray together.